and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. Thank you for listening, David. Yeah. How you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm sick. Yeah. And here's what I want to talk about. Oh, good. I understand other people don't want to get sick, but the way that I've always thought about it and the way that it has always seemed to me is that a bug goes around and you either get it and you don't, and you probably got it before you even realized the other person was sick anyway. So quit acting like I have fucking Ebola because I'm coughing into, by the way, completely covering my mouth. Mm -hmm. I'm coughing. I have a little bit of the sniffles. Quit treating me like a freaking leper. Not you personally. I'm talking about people, you know. I don't want you to get me sick before my uh, 15-hour flight to New Zealand. I'll say that. Yeah, but that's still... Uh, that's a week away. Yeah. You could probably get sick and be better by then. That's anyway. What, that's what I thought about my trip to Seattle. That didn't work <laughs> out. But, uh, no, I understand, uh, to a certain extent because like when I, years ago when I was, uh, working at that post-production house and I got, uh, uh, pneumonia, I got, um, bronchitis and then pneumonia, um, like they would hear me coughing and I, I tried to do the same thing, like into the sleeve, the whole deal. And they're just like, they're like, Tyler, go home. And part of me's like, and, and here's the thing. Oh, I didn't geez. like the job. So yes, sir. No <laughs> problem. I, I was thrilled to go home to be ordered to go home. I'm, I'm following orders. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, just the general attitude is like, you know, I'm not doing this to you. Yeah. Like, I, I am also inconvenienced by being sick. Yeah, and also, it's just a cold. It happens. It's going to happen yeah. a couple times a year. You're going to get a cold. And let me ask you this, because you were born here in California, but um, mostly, I guess, uh, you know, you, you lived in the Midwest for a long time. Mm. I, I don't remember going to work and ever being told to go home when I was sick when I lived in the Midwest. Is it just these uh, West Coast uh, wusses? Uh, maybe. Yeah. Do you think I that's think, what it is? You know what I think it is? Uh, I think there's a great deal of pressure out here to get stuff done. Like, uh, I would say even more so than like in the Midwest, like they're like, you got to work, you got to work. And it's like, well, if I'm sick, I'm away from work and that's, and it's just going to pile up. And so I cannot get sick cause I cannot, I cannot afford to lose a day of working time. I'm not talking about money. I mean, just getting shit done. And so it might be that. I think it's I, that emphasis. I, I, of, I see, uh, to me, uh, that, that's interesting because I, I guess there is, there is some of that uh, in, here in Los Angeles. But it seems like California in general, um, people are more concerned in some ways good and in some ways they go too far with it with health, mm -hmm. you know. And I think it's great. I definitely eat healthier now that I live, live here, although compared to my girlfriend and people who are from and grew up here, I, the, I mean, as far as my girlfriend's concerned, I eat like – a barbarian i just want to be like you should go hang out with my family for a week you know and see yeah i'm really lucky to have gotten out of here when i did so that i could start eating crappily um and start <laughs> yeah. eating stuff that i like yeah um and so i mean it's the same thing like you know if there's if someone lights a cigarette on the same fucking block as you're on and suddenly you're gonna get cancer yeah. it's it, it i know i sound like a bad comedian from like 1993 but it's just in my head because I've been told I went to work today because I took two and a half days off and I've got shit to do. Yeah. You know, I have, a, I have a lot of shit to do at work. I ended up working late and I just got sick of people being like, dude, you should just go home. And it's yeah. like, I can't just go home. 
<laughs> I have work to do. Well, the thing that gets – I would – I mean people said, uh, you know, just go home to me when I had pneumonia. But it, it was always like, well, don't touch me. It's like, well, I wasn't going to, but now I only want to touch you. That's all I want to do. And just – I already feel lonely enough. Being sick is very lonely, I find. Because uh, like, you know, Jen does – I don't want to touch Jen. I don't want her to get sick. Well, Monday and Tuesday, Natalie and I were sick together. We oh, spent the day nice. together at home. We watched Fifty Fifty, which is a dumb movie. Um, yeah, this is what she she rented. It's so dumb that you wish con- cancer upon people, as far as I can tell, right? <laughs> yeah, something, so, like something like that. Something like that. Um, this is what my girlfriend rented to stay home sick: Contagion and Fifty Fifty. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, she threw in Contagion. I had seen it fairly recently, and as I've talked on the show, didn't care much for it. So mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to watch. Batman Begins in the bedroom. I took some Nyquil. I you watched. Know, you the watched first... it in the bedroom. I uh, know. I watched Batman Begins in the bedroom, or more specifically, I watched the first nine minutes of Batman Begins, and then I woke up at the very end. Okay. Um, so it's still been a while since I've seen that movie. I do like being <clears throat> sick because it does allow me to guilt-free watch, like catch up on things. I I loved it. Like when I was sick, uh, I think back in uh, late May, early June. Uh, I was able to catch up on some movies that, you know, on Redbox that I wouldn't pay a lot of money for, like Unstoppable, for example. But then I also got to watch, that's when I watched Luther, that's when I watched Sherlock, uh, mm-hmm. and just being like, oh, this is wonderful. And then I got better and I had to get back to my stupid life. <laughs> uh, I want to say, because this is what I do now, apparently, I say a movie's dumb and then I think about it for a few minutes and I'm like, if I were listening to the podcast and I liked that movie, that would really piss me off that it was just dismissed as dumb. Good for you, thinking about other people. So I want to talk about what I didn't like about Fifty Fifty, mm-hmm. which is uh, now refresh. I don't know. Uh, I, you're a Mark Twain scholar, so you know this. Mm-hmm. Um, was it Tom Sawyer who like wanted to fake his own death so that his like aunt would feel bad for bossing him around? I believe it was Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Yeah. That that's what. I know the guy who wrote it really had cancer. That is immaterial to my opinion of it as a film. It, I am judging the film itself, not the backstory of the film. Okay. Of, of how the film was made. You know, that's for fanboys. Real, real film critics judge a film based on the merits of the film alone. So, um, Aren't you happy you decided to explain further to get yourself out of trouble? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't even fully believe that. I think that isn't, there is a place for that kind of analysis of a film but you know an academic one i think if we're talking about was the guy's name will riser is that the guy that sounds right yeah if we were talking about his career it would you know uh, say he ends up having a, a, a respectable ouvre a film then um that sort of discussion will absolutely be uh be necessary but for these purposes my purposes right now i'm talking about the film itself mm-hmm. not the backstory and it felt like a weird Sick wish fulfillment, fan- wish fulfillment fantasy of, you know, if I had cancer and everyone felt sorry for me, it would really highlight to all the people around me who ignore me in my current uh, life just how awesome I am. That, that's what fifty fifty felt like to me. And I felt myself becoming... Awesome in, in what way? Okay. Let, before I, before because, I because, talk about this, in, in what way? Well, you haven't seen the film, right? right? Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the, the main character has nary a flaw okay there are there are things wrong with his life like he's dating a girlfriend he 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 shouldn't um that's i guess the main thing um uh yeah i mean i guess it's mostly about his his relationship and his 
his getting cancer is what makes him realize that she's a bad girlfriend and then gets him the right girlfriend. Spoilers. Okay. Spoiler alert. Uh, it is it is a it is a romance I think as much as anything okay. you know, um, and uh, yeah I, I guess that that's that's the main thrust of the story so that's the main thing that bothered me that he um, does doesn't have any flaws and uh, once he gets cancer everyone is as attracted to him as they always should have been and that's that's the way the movie feels to me. Well, okay. Um yeah, that is actually one of my least favorite things, and that is one of the things that I got uh, just from reading reviews, and it just didn't seem like a movie I would enjoy. Uh, I tend not to like protagonists that are seemingly flawless. It's one of the reasons I've never found Superman to be very interesting hmm. um, as a hero, as opposed to like a Batman or a Wolverine or something like that. Um, you know, it's... It just seems, and and that's the and that's where the problem becomes. You know, like, well, he the guy wrote it himself, so now what do you do? Do you <laughs> does this is that is this how he sees himself? Is this how he wishes he had acted? I'm I'm almost willing to say that's okay if he said, "I wish I was as good as strong as this character." Um, but uh, show some of that overcoming that, right? And I know fans of the film. I think one thing they might point to as a flaw is the, um the way that the character lead character um sort of disregards his mother and her concerns mm-hmm. but even then the way it's presented in the film is less like he learns not to be uh such a dick to his mom and more as like he learns to be magnanimous enough to put up with his mom's craziness that, that that's the way it yeah that's the way it felt to me yeah it's a, a good character is now made perfect through Adversity is the arc of the <laughs> right. film. Yeah. Uh, That's what I'm saying. You haven't seen it, so right. no one send Tyler any hate mail. I know some people... I mean, this was on some people's best of the year list, so oh, yeah. I was very excited to have watched it. And it does seem to have resonated with people in a different way. I remember you and I were on the Paul Goebel show, and I think earlier that day, oh, right. he had seen 50-50. I forgot about And that. it got him thinking about his friends and his life. And, and I forgot that, that, that was the movie, yeah. And that... And then it caused him to be very grateful for the things that he has. And so, yeah, I mean, you never know when this is, you know, how, how this might hit somebody. But it's one of those things that, like, I don't mean to say something incredibly cynical. But when you make a movie like that, it is, it's not totally unlike Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. I have heard it's better than that. I've seen that film. I've not seen 50-50. But it's one of those things, like, or a Holocaust film. If you make it... It is a guarantee that I'm going to say at least half the people that see it will it will resonate with them in a way that isn't nece- – there's nothing wrong with them for a Holocaust film or a 9-11 film or a cancer film. There's nothing wrong with that subject having resonance. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But like a filmmaker should know then what to do with it because if you are counting on that resonance to do the work for you, then it just mm. t- becomes exploited. Well, I will say – Things I liked about Fifty Fifty, it is uh, rather funny at, at many points, and that um, most of that has to do with Seth Rogen, whom I still like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I will say, when it comes to the fact that the the the, the title of the film Fifty Fifty, there's a fifty percent chance mm-hmm. 
um, that he's going to die from this cancer, it doesn't pull any punches. Like it really does transmit how scary a prospect that okay. is. Okay. So uh, I, I will give it. Um, and I'm sure it's moments like those that really like get mm-hmm. the audience, and and so like the emotional up and down. And when you've got that, it's like you know the idea of a character arc seems almost arbitrary because it's just like oh, who cares about growth? Like personal <laughs> growth. We got to worry about this growth. Exactly. I'm glad you made that joke, so I didn't have to. Um, but yeah, so I was thinking, it's like, who who can care about personal growth when you think about this physical growth and all that sort of thing? But um, so, um, I mean, despite Seth Rogen's performance, he will not be on today's uh, episode. At least not for me of uh, best performances or, or best individual achievements of the year. And fifty fifty will not get a uh, original screenplay nod <laughs> from me. Um, but that's what we're doing. Uh, it's as per tradition, uh, the week after the Oscars, we give out our awards that we don't have a name for individual achievement is what uh, we should come up with this. Oh, <laughs> beepies, <laughs> beepies. <laughs> Hold on. We've been doing this almost five years. I tend to forget everything I say as soon as I leave here every night mm-hmm. or every Thursday night. Uh, we record on Thursday. That's all right. We're um, reminded uh, pretty much immediately yeah. by listeners. But, we one of us must have said BPs before, right? No, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> but uh, okay, so BPs. What would they be? The snobbies? Uh, I said what they would be. They would be BPs. <laughs> it's done. All right, and it's fun to say. All right. Say it, David. <laughs> BPs. Isn't it fun? It is pretty fun. So um, here's what I like about Oscar season. Uh, even if I last week I said I don't particularly like Oscar season itself. I like, we've got easily five episodes done. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm sure, and I'm sure listeners have caught on to this, that, uh, okay, the Oscars mean that we have an episode talking about the nominations, we have our top ten, we have an Oscar <clears throat> recap, and then we have individual achievement, and I think we might have another one that's, like, dependable. Yeah, uh, we had another there. one this year, too. And so... Um, but yeah, you're right. That is, it does, it does mean that a certain segment of the year takes care of itself. But also, I, I believe that if we're talking about a year in film, the idea of just doing away with it in a week, you know, just having here's the best of the year, and now on to the new stuff. There, yeah. There's a reason that um, the the first few months of the year are relatively anemic in terms of uh, major releases, mm-hmm. um, uh, and. Uh, uh, I think that's because people are catching up on the previous year's films, and it's and I think it's the respectful thing to do to the year in film that was to spend some time really thinking about it. I mean, if that's how we're going to justify it, then so be it. That's know? how uh, that's honestly how I think about it. It's not just justification. <laughs> okay, but um, so you you the listeners know what our favorite films of the year were. We talked about them two weeks ago. If you don't mm-hmm. go ahead and download that, um, that's episode two fifty seven. I guess. Um, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to talk about, yes, individual no, David, when they, when they down, when they down, I'm sorry to interrupt when mm-hmm. they, uh, download these episodes, how are they going to listen to them? Uh, you know what? You know, obviously this is free country. It's up to you. Exactly. And I imagine whatever country you're listening to is probably free, um, in, in, in its own, uh, way. But what I would recommend mm. the way I listen to podcasts, yeah, is through some earbuds that I got from tweakedaudio.com. Mm-hmm. Now, I got them for free. Right. We can't offer you that. No. You can't get them for free. That, we just got to get that out 
right from the right well, from the get go. Can I at least get some sort of discount? David? Yes, here's what you can do. Okay. Well, no, you also got them for free. Here's what you, the listener, can. But do. if I wanted more now, yeah. Here's what any one of us could do, and those of us who already have them and know how uh, wonderful these earbuds are might want to buy them as gifts for oh, other yeah. people. Easter is right around the corner. <laughs> Crack open one of those eggs, like, oh my gosh! Yeah, there you go, tweakedaudio.com earbuds. So what you do, uh, you go to tweakedaudio.com, you peruse their many, many uh, styles and colors, mm-hmm. uh, you pick the, the, the one or more that's right for you, then when you get to checkout, you put in the offer code pretension, mm-hmm. and boom, one third off, 33% off yeah. your order. That's pretty good. That's and a these good are, deal. And these are very good. Uh, these are very good earbuds. I highly recommend them. Um, and uh, by the way, I just had a thought. There are probably lis- there are listeners that are tired of hearing this, and that is unfortunate because <laughs> they are our sponsor, and this is going actually quite well for us. So I apo- so I'm sorry no, if, I don't if you think... are off put uh, put off by this, but uh, you know, uh, you know what. Get yourself some tweakedaudio.com earbuds, type in pretension, get the 30%, 33% off, 33%. and uh, you'll see what we're talking about, and then yeah. you'll, be, you'll be talking about it to your friends. And then you won't be bored of, about hearing us plug it, because you'll be hearing it in a whole new It'll way. Be your favorite time of the show. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's probably about right. All so, right. Uh, yeah, tweakedaudio.com, put in offer code pretension at checkout. Do it. Um, let's get into it, shall we? Yes. On to the beepies. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> All right. Um, should we start with supporting actor? Sure. Do we want to do the acting categories first and then do the uh, other things that were important to us individually uh, at the end? Sure. Okay. okay. So let, let's go with supporting male actor. Okay. Supporting performance in a film by a male. Um, Be- BPs. Okay. The, the BP goes to uh, my, David's BP. <laughs> uh, I don't, that, that, now it sounds bad. Now it sounds. <laughs> it sounds like a like a little a toy a child would have. Like, yeah. Oh, David, David forgot his BP. Don't forget. There, yeah. Let's move past that image uh, and on to my award for um, supporting performance by a male. And I'm already. Sort of doubting whether or not this is a supporting performance. Oh, okay. I kind of am thinking it's the lead okay. performance. Um, so you tell me, Hunter McCracken in the Tree of Life as Young Jack is that the lead performance? I think that is the lead performance. If there is a lead in the film, it is him. But I guess the way I thought of it, and I know this is silly, is that I think of Sean Penn as the lead because it's told in flashback, even though he's not. I mean, okay, the Jack, Jack is the lead character, mm-hmm. but I guess I think because it's in flashback, even though more of it is in flashback than in the present, I don't think of that performance as a lead performance. Yeah, you know, it's 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 like Shine, where uh, David Helfgott is portrayed by three different actors, right? Um, and Noah Taylor, from a, from the point of view of like an arc, Noah Taylor has most of the arc. Mm-hmm. But Jeffrey Rush mm-hmm. is the one that got the Oscar for lead performance. Um, and so, yeah, it's hard to know, but I would actually be willing to say that it was the lead just because he's on from a, from the point of view of screen time and from the point of view of arc, because uh, he does change significantly over the course of the film. So the character, including Sean Penn as the lead, um, 
in general, but I think as far if you want to break it down into performers, I think his was a lead performance if there was one in that film. Okay. Do you want to rearrange? Um. Uh. No. I'll just. I'll talk about. Uh, yeah. I think he was great in the film. Okay. Um. Do you agree that Hunter McGregor? Uh, very much so. I yeah. thought he was because nobody had ever seen him before, and he has to play a number of uh, emotions and, and revelations and all that and he does it all wonderfully so if i have to go with a backup just in case this okay. doesn't uh pass i'll go with john hawks and martha marcy may marlene okay as supporting actor okay how about you i will see your john hawks <laughs> and i will raise you another cult leader <laughs> in the film red state ah um which is a film i did not expect to enjoy and for the most part i did enjoy uh Possibly because my standards were very low. But Michael Parks... Did you see Red State? I forget. No, I have not seen okay. it. Okay. Some people love it, some people hate it. But even the people that hate it will, will specify that Michael Parks, as the leader of this church... the Fred, They say Fred Phelps-type le- leader. As far as who he is, yes. That's the type of... He's this pastor. As far as, as how he acts, I can't imagine a less Fred Phelpsian type. He is not necessarily fire and brimstone. He's a little bit towards the end, but in that in that moment, he's sort of uh, he's sort of gloating um, mm-hmm. and and all that. But uh, there is uh, about halfway through the film, he delivers a very long sermon. Now, I could have listened to it for a half hour, not because I was enjoying the things he was saying, but because it, it is a magnetic performance. And the thing about I'll bring John Hawks in this as well because he was kind of my backup for this as well, is that both performances are amazing because, you know, I, I've not, I've never been part of a cult. Yes, okay, all right, anti-Christian people, you can make any joke you want. But, like, the idea of somebody joining this thing that could be v- quite destructive, if not to yourself personally, as in Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, then to the community in general the person who leads this thing needs to be charismatic. They need to be the type of person you are attracted to, maybe not physically attracted to, but just there needs to be something there that makes you think like, wow, who is this person? They seem to have it figured out. John Hawks absolutely does it. And Michael Parks, during the sermon, there's it's just such an interesting choice. He he whispers a good a good portion of it, not literally, not like, not like this, but talks very quietly. And the thing that and, and it causes you as the viewer to lean forward and listen, really listen to the point where you realize, oh, shit, like this is I remember I remember at the time I thought, you know, this is probably how Satan works. He's not big and bombastic. He's very he'd be very sly and get you to lean forward and really listen first so that uh so that when he he says stuff that you're like, oh, I don't know if I agree with that. By the time he's gotten there, he's already gotten you really paying attention and gotten you probably to agree with some things first. And then before you know it, you're in territory you never anticipated, but you're okay with it. Hmm. And so Michael Parks, it is such a wonderful performance. He's an actor who's been just kind of – he's been in a bunch of stuff, uh, a lot of Tarantino films. And uh, this is one of the most – if this were – a different type of film, he would have been nominated because hmm. it is such an amazing performance. All right. 
um, supporting actress for me. Again, I I don't know that you saw this film. I can't. I think you might have. I can't remember. But I don't. I think some people might disagree with me. Uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg in Melancholia. I did not see it. Okay. Now, the f- the the film is split into two halves. The first half is called Claire, which is Kirsten Dunst's character. Mm-hmm. The second half is called Justine, which is Charlotte Gainsbourg's character. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could say the second half is she's a co lead, but I still think that even when the film turns its focus and and it's more on Justine, it's still more, if not overtly, than at least thematically about how Justine reacts to Claire. I think Claire's story is the one that drives the the movie. Um, And, um, I mean, I don't want to, obviously, don't be any any spoilers, but uh, Claire is the sort of decisive force uh, in in the finale. So uh, I, I think that I'm safe calling Charlotte Gainsbourg's performance a supporting one, but we'll see, we'll see if I uh, get any emails or tweets. I get more tweets than emails, okay. I think, which is how I like it. Um, I much prefer an email. Yeah, people I think are less likely to be jerks uh, when they've got more than 140 characters. Yeah, but it's less likely to take me more than a few seconds to read if it's on twitter that's true yes (laughs) that's that's what i like just get the point across um but i I guess because uh there there are different ways to watch melancholia depending on what your personal life experience is um i mean i i have had as a younger kid like a sort of pubescent post pubescent kid some problems with depression of my own Mm. But I've had much more experience um, being around or being someone who is depended on by depressives or manic depressives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, Justine, as the um, at first glance more grounded character, uh, is the one that resonates more with me. Hmm. But it resonates more not just because she's the grounded um, you know, source of support to Claire, but that, uh, in contrast to Claire's sort of like big meltdowns and, and depressions and not eating, not being able to move and, and all these very dramatic things that are, that are, that are heartbreaking to watch. And I imagine someone with more experience with depression would find them even more heartbreaking to watch. What you see in subtle ways is the way that Justine has her own problems in life that maybe, they take a back burner because her sister has problems that cause more attention. And some of Justine's problems are caused by the fact that she is, um, so insistent on being there for her sister, you know, even though she has, um, a a husband and, and and a kid. And by the way, I mean, if I were doing a top five supporting actors, Kiefer Sutherland, I think, I mean, people talked about how good he was, but I mean, I Mm -hmm. I think, Kirsten Dunst and Charlotte Gainsbourg got most of the credit for this movie because they're both so great in it. But Kiefer Sutherland gives his best performance maybe ever in <laughs> Melancholia. Um, but anyway, back back to Charlotte Gainsbourg. Um, the, <clears throat> uh, what I was saying is that you see the way that she has her own problems and that some of those problems are caused by her sticking by her sister. Um, and... Uh, and, and even then, it goes another layer deeper, where she's not um, just 
a, a saint or a martyr who's um, a pillar of strength and, you know, is weathering all these problems, you start to see the way she... Uh, you don't even start to see I mean, there are parts uh, right at the beginning of the film. She tells the sister that she hates her sometimes, you know, uh, it, it's, there's so much going on in this character and there's so many, um, uh, conflicting loyalties that she maybe wishes didn't have to be conflicting. Um, but, uh, it, it's, it's all going on in what is, uh, by necessity, a much quieter performance than Kirsten Dunst's, who is also very good in the film. Uh, and therefore resonated more with me. All right. David, we are on the same wavelength. <laughs> okay. Supporting actress for me is Sarah Paulson. <laughs> Take everything you said, apply it to Sarah Paulson, <laughs> and here we are. This is in Martha Marcy and Marlene. Yeah. Okay. Uh, same deal. Like, and, and this is, you know, we've, I don't think we ever actually did that episode about supporting characters um, that we meant to do. But or maybe we did. I don't remember. We're coming up on five years. So yeah, uh, the idea of the supporting performance as the grounding thing, uh, the thing that our lead reacts to, or you know somebody who is meant to set the tone for the world that they are living in, and Sarah Paulson as um, Martha's sister does such a great job of being that, wanting to be supportive. I mean, it's. Their relationship is to me like the essence of family. You are dedicated to this person. You genuinely love this person. But it is that realization. It's like this is a, I was going to say hassle. It's more than that. This is <laughs> like a burden. Mm-hmm. And and it's a burden for somebody like this is not a friend. Somebody that I've voluntarily chosen to be with or hang mm-hmm. out with. Mm-hmm. This is somebody who we happen to have the same parents. That's how it worked out. And it, I've always been fascinated by that that dynamic because what loyalty do you really have to this person? And when you see how she is trying, but she also old you know old arguments bubble to the surface and and Martha certainly is not making it easy to be loved and supported, and even when Martha recognizes that she is in a bad place, she still instinctively will like criticize Sarah Paulson and, uh, uh, Hugh Dancy. Mm -hmm. And so, but you just see like the, how hard it can be to love somebody and how it's not going to be perfect. You're not going to love somebody perfectly. Uh, but you, but she still feels more than an obligation. It is a genuine love and affection but also trying to figure out how how best can I help this person when they sometimes don't seem to need help and sometimes they spit in my face. Mm-hmm. Like, what what do I do? And it's just, it seems like such a grounded, realistic performance. And uh, it really, I think we mentioned this uh, when we talked about Martha Marcy May Marlene before. Uh, I liked Sarah Paulson as an actress before. And then this performance really got me seeing, like, how good she can be. Okay. Lead actor. I don't think uh, anyone's going to be surprised that I picked Michael Shannon mm-hmm. from Take Shelter. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I stand by it. I'm, anyway, A, I'm not trying to surprise you here. I'm trying to pick who I think is the best. Um, but uh, there's a, a recent film that just came out in theaters uh, a couple of days ago, is the time you're listening to this, called uh, Being Flynn, directed by Paul Weitz, 
where Robert De Niro plays in some ways a similar character to to Michael Shannon, depending on how you interpret Take Shelter. Um, but if you interpret it that he is a paranoid schizophrenic, um, then there are some similarities with Robert De Niro's performance or character, at least in being Flynn. Um, Robert De Niro, unfortunately chooses to, uh, you know, gnash at the scenery and, uh, you know, perform more than act, you know, and, and make a big, uh, just make a big show of it. Um, whereas, and, 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 and in doing so, he, De Niro, De Niro's character can look to be unpleasant to be around, which is part of the point. Mm. Um, but what Michael Shannon does is, um, clues you in to the ways that he is, um, not only acting crazy, you see that through his, his coworker, his brother, and of course his wife, uh, most of all, um, but the way that he is feeling and the way that he's feeling scared and nervous. Um, and it's, uh, uh, as I said two weeks ago in our best of, uh, take shelter is i think the best horror film of the year um and it is the tensest film i i saw in theaters this year and maybe in a long long time um and a a lot of that is because of jeff nichols choices as a uh, as a director but uh i think a great deal of it are um just the little um usually when people use the word ticks to describe a performance it's a negative thing mm-hmm. but you really think about how small that word is you know a tick and how how tiny you've seen the film how yeah. how tiny some of his like facial gest- gesture uh, facial expressions or gestures are and how much they say about what's going on with him mm. uh it, you know um and you know he does more by like uh, grunting internally and trying to hide it than by screaming. You, you know, when he, when he wakes up from his, uh, his nightmares that he has, it's not like the sit up in bed, like, ah, yeah. type of thing. He's like, you know, pressured himself into a tiny little ball and he's like bitten the inside of his cheek and he's bleeding. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, um, it's all so internalized. What you're seeing throughout the film is more, with a couple of exceptions, is more of an implosion than an explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it reminds me of, by the way, uh, my selection would have been Michael Shannon, but I was anticipating that you would say that. And so uh-huh. I. Uh, so you I'm were sorry. trying to be surprising. Yeah, kind of. Uh, but I also knew that I'd get a chance to talk about him because <laughs> I knew that that's what you were going to say. So, um, and if you didn't, I might have changed mine in the, in the last minute. But it's like. Uh, like I've never been drunk in my life, but I've had to play drunk on stage uh-huh. a few times. Uh-huh. And I remember they said, like, if you want to play drunk, here's what you do. Act like you are not drunk. Mm-hmm. Don't act sober. Act like you are not <laughs> drunk. And it really, it's like, don't stumble around instead. Walk the straightest line possible because then, cause that's what somebody does. If you want to act, if you want to make it seem like, you know, if you need to cry on stage, When's the last time in life you just let yourself sob? Uh-huh. You don't. You fight it. People fight it. So fight it as a character. Right. And, that, and it sounds like that's the difference between Michael Shannon and Robert De Niro, having not seen Being Flint. But uh, 
you know, don't you don't have to steer into the skid and be like, if I well, my character's possibly crazy, so let's really go for it. It's like, no, this is a character who is dealing with this issue and wants to look as sane as possible and maybe he mm-hmm. can trick other people and perhaps he can trick himself mm-hmm. and that is the key to his performance is just wanting to keep everything inside because his there's a, a history in his family of mental illness and the minute he starts showing the slight signs he knows my brother's gonna think i've got it my wife is going to think it. People in the community are going to think it. So yeah. I got to keep this to and, myself. And that's why I, mean, I talk about how, how tense and scary it is. It's also, I think, the saddest film of the year because the the scene, the big sort of centerpiece scene when he does sort of lose his composure in front of uh, a lot in public in front mm-hmm. of a lot of people is you know uh, uh, scary. You know, but it's also you also feel sad for him because of that because mm-hmm. you know he's he is realizing that he's not kept the facade on. Yeah. But he can't help himself at that point. Yeah. It's also a remarkably touching scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get into that. We, we won't get into that. So, right. um, so yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. It's a wonderful performance. All right. Lead actor for you. For me, a uh, character that also might be going crazy, actually, is uh, Rain Wilson in Super. It is uh, a character that is meant to be funny and also frightening. As we as we talked about uh, when discussing the film itself, like scenes that often start out as funny, they go the whole way, and you realize how actually disturbing it can be. And his character, I mean, it's it's been compared to Taxi Driver, and I'd say that's a pretty apt comparison uh, because you see that what he's doing is kind of silly and kind of funny, but you actually realize what the consequences are, and the, he has a it is it's sort of his. Uh, it's not his last monologue. He has some narration there at the end, but uh, but he has a moment where he confronts the the ba- the the lead bad guy, and he gives such an impassioned speech to him about why he's doing what he's doing, and it's so childlike and so simple. And if you played it wrong, it could have come off as moralizing. And it is and it is a little bit moralizing, but you also see just how heartbroken this guy is by the life that he's lived, but also just the world that he lives in and the tragedy of his life. And just it's always there. And the fact that he can sometimes that he can take that sometimes skew it so that it's funny and then sometimes skew it so that it's tragic. But it's the same. It's just a slight modulation in each in, in either direction. And it's just such a such a fascinating performance and you're just like your eyes are just riveted to the screen and uh he really carries that film and uh and i i've liked him as an actor i think he's he's a very good actor but something like this you see like like i was saying with sarah paulson you 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 see how far he can stretch as an actor without seeming to really stretch and there are moments where he's kind of over the top such as the nature of the character but the moments when he keeps it quiet and keeps it kind of dialed in are, are equally fascinating. Okay. So now on to, uh, lead actress. Mm-hmm. And now, um, it, uh, like I said, I might get some emails about Charlotte Gainsbourg because they don't think of it. Uh, people might not think of it as supporting. I might get some emails about this one simply because she herself is such a divisive, divisive figure. 
but I am going with Miranda July as Sophie in the future, mm-hmm. written and directed by Miranda July. Um, and, you know, I, it's funny after talking both with Charlotte Gainsbourg and Michael Shannon about subtlety to talk about Miranda July, who is such an, such an extrovert. Uh, and, and so, um, what people could, um, dismiss as quirky. Um, and I've talked, uh, I know when I wrote my review of the future, um, which you can find at battleship com. I talked about this, but, um, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast. I don't think quirky is the right word for Miranda July. I think, um, when people are being quote unquote quirky, it's because they are in a way, uh, consciously, self-consciously trying to be like what Miranda July is naturally. Mm -hmm. I think because there's no self-consciousness to the way she acts, this is just who she is. This is just an expression of herself. She, uh, transcends quirk, uh, or, or maybe is, is some sort of like platonic form of quirkiness. Um, so I, I, I don't like when people describe her as such. Um, but I don't pick her here just because um, she's – because I happen to find her, uh, you know, charming or cute or anything like that, um, which I do. But that's uh, th- that's another thing. What I, what I talked about, if you remember, two weeks ago um, when I talked about the future as my fourth favorite film of the year, um, the way that it uh, – over the course of its 90 something minutes continues to reveal itself to be about more than you thought it was. Uh, I don't know if you remember me saying this, mm-hmm. that it like seemed like kind of a trite observation of like extended adolescence or, or, you know, um, uh, which we've seen before. And then you sort of realize it's about, um, you know, uh, it's about trust and relationships and it's, uh, uh, about, uh, life and time and it beca- just keeps becoming about these bigger and bigger things. Um, and I think, uh, July's performance, it, it goes along the same lines, uh, which makes sense since she wrote and, direct, wrote and directed the film. Um, what is at first just, uh, seems like a bundle of mannerisms. You come to see like, Oh, okay. So sh- there are some, uh, cohesive parts of her as a, as a character, you know, some hopes and fears and, and stuff like that, but it's stuff we've seen before. And then you start, uh, to see how she, in a way, I I don't want to be reductive and say that she is able to find ways to, uh, represent womanhood or at least in terms of relationships. Um, cause I, I, I don't think that would be the right way to put it, but I do think that she is, um, able to, um, without any facade or again, any self-consciousness, um, provide a, a window into what a relationship, even a, a, you know, quote unquote, like progressive or sophisticated liberal urban relationship, you know, um, even within that, she's able to provide a window into what a woman's role in that relationship is like and what's expected of her in terms of, um, um, yeah, I don't know how you want to put it. Uh, loyalty, not only, not only, uh, um, specifically 
overtly, uh, you know, sexual fidelity, mm. but also just, uh, even emotional fidelity or even, um, uh, putting herself first. And is that necessarily a, you know, I mean, that's not a crime to, to, uh, put yourself at least equal if not if not first i mean a person is first in their own mind and uh you just sort of she's not uh, afraid in this film to make herself look bad in um what's the word i'm looking for your initial reaction to some of her actions in the film is to dislike her and then she makes you realize she is a whole person and it is deserving of your uh, consideration and sympathy. And that's interesting uh, having not seen the film, but it's interesting in reference to what we were talking about earlier, which is uh, the character from 5050 who you get a writer who is writing about himself and in doing so has written a character that is, as you said, mostly flawless. Mm-hmm. And then you get this where not only is she writing and directing the character, she's playing the character. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe the char- maybe she feels like the character is nothing like herself. If I had to guess, I'd say that's not the case. <laughs> um, and so her willingness to you know put herself out there. As you know, I, I didn't see the future, but and I wasn't a big fan of me and you and everyone we know. But I do still admire what she does. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes as a function of her being like a performance artist and, and all of that and just mm-hmm. being willing to kind of bear herself uh, emotionally. And uh, yeah, I I rented the future at a time when I shouldn't have rented anything because I was way too busy to watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I wound up and I got about five minutes in and then had work to do. And then it just sat on my table for about seven days and then i realized like this is unnecessary i should return it <laughs> so you don't rent at Redbox so that you can you know get you know rack up fees <laughs> so um so yeah I, and i do want to watch it i mean what i what i saw of it you know that five to seven minutes uh, was pretty good i think it's gonna work out it, it it gets much better as the film goes on i didn't mind oh well, i liked what i saw yeah i'm saying it uh, I, I the 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 beginning of the film is kind of it's nice and fun, but it yeah. becomes a. It never loses its sense of fun, I guess, but it becomes much, much heavier and more grand. Now, David, did you know that I can stop time? Here we go. <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> You're not supposed to laugh. You're supposed to be totally quiet. It was going to be a fun. It was theater of the mind, David. Okay. All right. All right. Um. So I was going to say for uh. Uh, female actor in a leading role. There you go. That's for uh-huh. you. Um, I was going to say Anna Paquin for Margaret. And by the way, uh, I got uh, one or two comments on this, and I was incredibly embarrassed. Uh, when I talked about the movie Margaret, oh, right. uh, I misspoke. I know that the character's name is Lisa because it is mentioned several times, not merely when someone says, hey, Lisa, go get me a glass of water. That's not a line in the film. But it's not merely that. Like A big deal is made of her name. Uh-huh. And so I remember that I just misspoke when you I said, said yeah. her name was Margaret. I, I saw the film. So, because <laughs> um, that's the kind of thing, isn't that the perfect kind of thing that, like, like, oh no, Margaret's really good and Anna Paquin's really good as Margaret. <laughs> yeah. It's the kind of thing someone would but, say. You know, to I still think of Joy Lauren Adams and Chasing Amy as being named Amy, even though it's Alyssa or Finger yeah. Cuffs. Finger Cuffs, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so I was going to say Anna Paquin, but I feel like I've talked about her uh, a fair amount. So I want to go to uh, Kristen Wiig in uh, Bridesmaids. Did you see Bridesmaids? I no, I, and I won't see it. Why is that? Because uh, I'm taking a stand against uh, certain forms of humor that I find unsettling. So, like what? Like, uh, you know. Like improv comedy? No, I mean uh, specifically fecal-based humor. I do not care for fecal-based humor, but that's a funny scene. Okay. It's the same reason I won't watch The Help. Oh, I'm kind of with you on that one, but that's – okay. But like – so uh, the cast is – is it is very much as, – as we saw with the Oscars and they brought the whole cast out, uh, the whole female cast out to introduce uh, mm-hmm. or to present short the short film awards. Um, so it is thought of as an ensemble and then if anybody's going to be singled out, it is often Melissa McCarthy and fair enough, she's very good. Kristen Wiig is the lead of that film, and she does very well in that part. You may recall a year or two ago, I think I singled her out for supporting actress for the film Extract. Hmm. And she – man, it, it's, it's such a it's such a – I'd say mostly fearless performance, not totally unlike I would say Paul Giamatti in Sideways where she's charming, she's funny – we enjoy spending time with her, but we see just how self-destructive she can be and how it does seem to really stem from a self-loathing. And the moments when she is really self-destructive and, like, you know, potentially alienates her friends because of, like, a deep insecurity, I mean, the moments start out kind of funny, but then they – you'll notice a the theme here. It starts funny and – turns rather tragic and it's very sad but then you yourself like you were saying with miranda july you yourself are just like come on what are you doing (laughs) like stop it stop it and she won't because she just she's she's gone so far afield she's gone so down into the like shame well that that she just feels like i'm sure she is responsible for actions but it seems as though it's somebody else doing this stuff and that she cannot help herself. Now, of course she can. And there, and therein lay the flaw of the character is that her own insecurities just completely take over, uh, at times. And so it's just, a just a full, a fully rounded character, but that's the thing. And that's, I've seen plenty of characters like that, that I don't like, and I don't root for. So she needs to give you just enough charm and, resilience and likability that you are rooting for her to get out of this funk and to recognize uh, that she is loved by her friends and she is uh, desirable uh, to men and not merely like physically or or sexually desirable, just desirable as a, as a friend, as somebody that you'd want to have a relationship of some kind with. And so you're rooting for that, but it, it's very much uh, not what we're talking about. She is a deeply flawed character, and she is incredibly frustrating. But, uh, I mean, Kristen Wiig, like, she co-wrote it, and she wrote herself a pretty amazing character, and she really delivered. All right. Well, that's a, those are the... What are the other ones we wanted to do? Director? 
director and actor and then kind of a, a grab bag of things. Um, specific just categories here and there. I mean, I can't, uh, I can't not go with Jeff Nichols for director, and I've already talked about okay. Take Shelter. So, what do you have for director? Okay, uh, for director, I've got Lynn Ramsey for We Need to Talk About Kevin, mm-hmm. who takes. You know, I, we've talked about this many times on the show. There are movies, and there are stories that seem so cut and dry. Like you read them on the page, and you're like, "I got it. Okay, so this is a good. This is an actor's movie." And uh, there you go. And that's what we need to talk about Kevin could have been. And it is. I mean, it's very much Tilda Swinton's film. Um, but it's it's so much more than that. And just the the color motifs. And, and some of them are really, like, really overt things. Like, the, like this woman has had red paint splashed on her house. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll notice that the... There's a motif of red and the the idea that she feels like she has blood on her hands and all that and just and the way Lynn Ramsey like tackles the flashbacks and heightens some emotions and down, and knows when to play it hyper real instead of uh, a heightened uh, sense of reality. Uh, it really is a very firm hand on the material. And it is not merely a camera sitting and watching the actor do all the heavy lifting. Uh, it is meant to – it's meant to uh, – it doesn't distract from the, the lead performance or, or the characters, uh, but it, it supports them. It doesn't ta- – she does not – Lynn Ramsey does not take a passive uh, role as the director. Uh, she is very active in – and understands through the editing and through camera work that this is a character who the the performer can do so much but I want to try and get us into her mind just to, or, or her emotional state I want to see what I can do with the tools at my disposal and she does a, a hell of a job I mean you mentioned you know take shelter being incredibly tense and I'd say uh Martha Marcy May Marlene rivals that and then we need to talk about Kevin is one of the tensest movies I've ever seen hmm. so Lynn Ramsey is uh, wonderful Okay. Um, as far, uh, well, I want to do a screenplay one. I don't know if you have a screenplay. Yeah, I've got one. Um, and again, just in the interest of not giving everything to take shelter, yeah. I want to single out uh, Andrew Hayes' Weekend because I think the screenplay is uh, – the performance is very good. I think the screenplay uh, is the um, the star of the film uh, because it's essentially a – two-person conversation i mean there's uh, some people come and go but essentially a two-person conversation over the course of 48 hours or so but um it's one of those things that um i think just on paper it probably doesn't have or immediately leap out as having like you know uh exposition rising action you know uh all those uh those or like Aristotelian sort of points you have to hit in screenplay structure or story structure. You know, um, it's just, it probably just reads as big chunks of dialogue. Um, but, uh, Andrew Hay knew what he was doing when he wrote it and obviously directed it to take, um, uh, a really compelling form. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, that's why. Okay. Uh, mine is written by Eli Craig and Morgan Jurgerson. And it's Tucker and Dale versus Evil, yeah. which is uh, – there seems to be a 
real skewering towards comedy here, but that's all right. Um, Good for you. Did you see Tucker and Dale versus Evil? I did. I loved it. I, I love it. And it's, you know, it's everything that you want a... It's not a parody, but you, it it's not necessarily even a satire, but it is an homage. It's everything that you want an homage to be, which is mm-hmm. commenting on mm-hmm. a certain genre while also fully partaking of that genre. Uh, mm-hmm. There are moments that are legitimately frightening and moments that are quite grisly, yeah. but it yeah, is definitely. also incredibly funny. And it is commenting very much on the tropes of the horror genre and the idea of, you know, the hills have eyes or um, wrong turn where, oh, it's these hillbillies that are the problem when in fact, you know, they're the ones that, that are killing everybody when in fact it's these uh, entitled college douchebags yeah. who uh, they come in with a, a very prejudicial attitude and they are responsible for their own deaths. Spoilers. But um, I think, sorry, am I cutting you off? Uh, and just the way that it, it manages to be all of that. It, it, it remains a commentary without sacrificing genuine comedy, genuine, I won't say scares, but shock moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it keeps all of that going. And it, by the way, it writes three or four solid characters. Tucker and Dale are both written very well. And the acting is good as well. Uh, Katri- uh, I don't remember the name of the character, but Katrina Bowden's character yeah. Who you think you understand, and then you find, oh, she's so much more than what I thought. And then the lead uh, frat guy, right. he's not necessarily in a frat. I'm sorry. If you're in a frat and I immediately assumed this guy was in a frat, I apologize. Yeah. But um, wrote him in an interesting way as well. Um, but what I like about because it is all those things, but it's not just a uh, deconstruction of the genre. It also is, it also has themes of its own. Um, uh, you know, uh, apart from being academic or meta or any of those things, just about the way that people um, surround themselves with like-minded people and then tend to make assumptions about mm-hmm. people outside their group yeah. or, 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 or to lump them all together. And it's not even, we're not even talking about simple things like racism, mm-hmm. you know, cause there are, I mean, uh, Tucker and Dale are both white, but there are, uh, uh, both white and black kids in the in the frat. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I, I did the same thing. I just think. Yeah. Uh, see, sorry. now we're now we're doing it. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Um, it, it's it's not about that. It's just about people who think differently for you. I, I think. Um, uh, I don't want to get too political here, but um, as things, you know, I think uh, you've got people like um, Olympia Snow retiring and citing the increasing partisanship uh, in in Congress. And I think the way that um, niche news networks like Fox or MSNBC have allowed people to retreat to the poles of their own yeah. beliefs, um, Tucker and Dale versus Evil is, a, from a very surprising source, uh, a plea for uh, consensus or, or, or uh, bipartisanship. I think that's a, gr- I think that's a, a really great point um, because, you know, it's – Having lived in a very conservative part of the country and a very liberal part of the country, mm-hmm. I can attest to the fact that everyone does it. Um, <laughs> it's like just when I'm out here and I and I and I see like you know I'm friends with various liberal people and I see like the way they talk about uh, people in Middle America and such, and I'm just like, come on, man. Then I go take a trip to Old Nixon, Missouri, home of Jason Bourne, and <laughs> and I hear the way they talk about the place where I have chosen to live, and it's just like. 
Oh, boy. All right. I don't like this either. But then, you know, uh, turn it back to myself. I'm a, I'm a film guy. I'm rather conservative. I'm a Christian. Like, any group you fall into, chances are you might turn a slight blind eye to the flaws of that group. Mm. And you're much more willing to say, this group over here, they're the ones who don't have it worked out. And yeah. It, uh, I, I won't uh, name any names, but um, I'll give an example, and I don't mean to, to like crap on this specific group, but I remember there was a podcast that I was listening to, and I stopped listening shortly thereafter, and um, there are three people who I would say are politically uh, left-leaning, mm-hmm. um, and they were talking about the way conservatives are and how they only, as you say, only surround themselves with people that agree with them and they only <laughs> watch the TV shows that they, that tells them they're right. Uh-huh. They only watch the movies that tell them they're right. And I, I punched my radio. Like I was dry. <laughs> and at the, by the way, at the time, I considered myself much more liberal than I do now. But as I was listening, I, it was my old car, so it was already not in the best shape. But I punched my radio and I was like, Michael Moore. The films of Michael Moore. Like, what, what, is it, what is that if not pandering yeah. to people that are just like... I think it's a good thing you stopped listening to that podcast. You should, oh, no question. You should probably stop letting things get to you that much. It's, but you know what? Here's the thing. In that case, it was liberals. It's the same with conservatives. No, I, I, I wasn't accusing you of... Uh, and it's the same with Christians, atheists, whatever. And so you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you brought it up. That is the, it's exactly what the film is, is referencing, and... If you haven't seen Tucker and Dale versus Evil, and I realize we've kind of spoiled it thematically for you, um, if you have, it, believe me, there's plenty there <laughs> oh, yeah, for yeah. you to enjoy. Yeah. All right, um, we should start wrapping up soon, so I'm going to run through a couple of mine. Um, hey, look how short this episode is. That, that's I good. shouldn't say that. I'm sick. I need to go home. Yeah. Um, I already talked about two weeks ago uh, how best visual effects should go to Take Shelter, and I talked about Take Shelter way too much. I also talked two weeks ago about. Um, uh, how my favorite score of the year is the score from Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really like the score from The Skin I Live In. Um, I, I wanted to talk about uh, something that was on your top ten list, but that I would put in my, my best debut film of the year would be Entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, um, another uh, honorable mention for, I guess, ac- uh, female actor, either supporting or lead. Um, and I called up her name on my phone. Hold on. Let me get to it. Uh, Glenn Close? Is it Glenn Close? <laughs> uh, uh, Alice Barnoll, who plays Madeline in House of Pleasures, the character also known as uh, the Jewess, or also known as the Laughing Lady uh, in, in the film. Um, that's a, a, a great performance. And then I also I want to end, and then I'll toss it over to you. Um, I have, as I've talked about for five years and even wrote a thing about uh, on the website way back on the old version of the website, but I think it's still up there, uh, how I pick or how I decide when, what year a movie came out. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk about a movie that I didn't see until 2011 or 2012, rather. Almost no one saw it until 2012, but it is a 2011 film that was great that I won't get to talk about mm. a year from now because it. Uh, premiered at AFI Fest in November of 2011, and that's Steven Soderbergh's Haywire. Oh, yeah. Which is a film that I really enjoyed when I saw it, and uh, wrote a very positive review of it for the website, and then I keep finding my mind wandering back to it. Yeah. And I really like it a lot. Yeah, it's pretty great. If you have the opportunity to see it, please do. It's, uh, you know, it's just one of those movies that's just, it's, it's, this may sound weird, it's a movie. 
It's not <laughs> really for as much as I like movies that, to explore things. It's just a movie, and it doesn't sacrifice qual- quality to be just purely entertaining. And it's so much fun, and it's just so so visceral. You just get, like, but it's not. But what's more, it's not in in any of the ways that modern action movies have been. And I say that as a fan of the Batman films and and the Bourne films, like. Man, that Soderbergh can direct a movie, and I know that sounds really cheesy to say and and just really obvious, but like the way he does action, you're like, right? He's a good director. I forget that sometimes. But also, he's not. Um, even if you might sometimes get, uh, and as I sometimes do, get uh, annoyed with some of Soderbergh's um, flashier choices or mm-hmm. the things that he leans on for himself, he's not a hack. He is. He is holy Soderberghian. So this, this is a, a, a thriller slash action movie, maybe more of a thriller. Um, it doesn't have all the things you come to expect from that genre. It is told in its own way. Mm-hmm. That is, um, maybe even more so than Tucker and Dale, a sort of, uh, deconstruction of a genre. Mm-hmm. If, if perhaps in a less overt way, it's more, uh, within the text as it were. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, um, it, it's both languid and propulsive at the same time. Uh, and I think that's because he's showing you a chase and a fight scene, but also allowing you to step back and, uh, experience it and, and, and sort of reflect on the fact that you're watching a chase and a fight scene. And I will compare it to a film that I like, but don't love, and you're not a big fan of it is everything that Drive could have been, but it actually is. Like a sort of a deconstruction uh, of a specific genre, but it goes beyond a mere exercise. Um, like rather than deal with character types, you're dealing with characters. Uh, I felt like every character in Haywire was a real character, whereas mm-hmm. – and I, and I like a lot of the performances in Drive. They do what they can. But I didn't feel really connected with anybody, and I felt like I was watching, like, this is the type of character you'll find in a film like this. It's mm-hmm. like, I'd much rather just watch the character, if that's all right. <laughs> um, but I, I still like Drive more than you do. I still enjoy it. I still own it on Blu-ray. And by the way, Blu-ray is the way to watch it. It's beautiful. Um, I mean, yeah. the theater is the way to watch it, but, you know. Drive um, has uh, made me I- – I've wondered why, with the success of Drive – more people haven't there hasn't been a resurgence of respect for Michael Mann's Manhunter because yeah. there are a lot of similarities. Um, I mean, by the end, Manhunter actually had something of a pulse. Um, but I say that as an insult, but I don't think I, I think Nicholas Vending Revin knows his film doesn't have any pulse by the end. Um, but I, I do think uh, I mean, I can only I, I would be shocked to find that. Nicholas Vinning Refn isn't a fan of Manhunter. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, that sort of, um, uh, you know, neon synthy exploration of, of Los Angeles. And is, I never saw Thief, but I assume it's probably pretty close to that, too, which is I never a Michael saw Mann Thief film. Either, yeah. Yeah. Is, but does Manhunter take, Manhunter take place in, in Los Angeles or in Florida? I think various. I, yeah, I, oh, I know that, it ends in Missouri. Francis Dollarhide lives outside okay, St. Yeah. Louis. But I think that I think that uh, Will Graham lives with his family in Florida. But then I think okay. he gets called elsewhere. Okay. But um, yeah, I mean, 
uh, Raffin has come up with some beautiful images, but he he wishes he came up with Joan Allen petting a tiger. Yeah, it's <laughs> and and I do. I don't mean to crap on Drive. It was one. Of, it was like in my top fifteen of last year because some of the some of the images are quite beautiful, and I do enjoy some of the performances. But by the end, it did leave me a little hollow feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so if you can go see Haywire, uh, I'll I'll sum up with some of and mine. If you haven't seen Manhunter, well, it. make yes, make that a priority. Um, and and I think a lot of people don't like that movie. Yeah, it's have I? I'm sure I have. Have I ever given my Hannibal Lecter spiel on here about why I prefer Brian Cox? I think you. Ha- I know you have to me. Yeah, I'll give that another day. So, um, but I, you know, I went. To, I, when I first saw Manhunter, I I loved it, and then I went through a period of not liking it because of how um, unabashedly eighties it is, and and just how false it is. Mm. Uh, and then I came to realize that as an intentional stylistic choice that you start to see pop up in other uh, Michael Mann films, sometimes to less success, like with the Miami vice movie. Um, but, uh, you know, now that I think about film differently, uh, Manhunter actually winds up pretty close to the top of my favorite Michael Mann films. Yeah. And I think that, I think when he, I'm not sure if I would describe it as, as false, but, when, like when he chooses to sort of embrace style over substance, which is not necessarily a wrong thing. It is often viewed as a negative. And I know that what I tend to prefer, but not exclusively. I mean, Haywire is style over substance. Uh-huh. But um, when he chooses to embrace style and when he chooses to embrace substance, it is notable when he does that because – and you'll notice that when he's dealing with Will or Francis Dollarhide, he is dealing with those characters on their level. Francis Dollarhide specifically, like he, you can tell he has a great deal of love and, and compassion for that character, and he does not does not want to just sum him up by the tall and gaunt Tom Noonan. And it would have been easy to do that. Just have it's like, all right, you see that? Okay, that's all you need. Like it really is willing to explore what's going on inside that character. And willing to let him be a, her, a human, but uh, anyway. So uh, I've got just a, just a couple here, a couple for art direction. Uh, I wish I'd written down the name of the uh, production designers. I'm sorry. Oh right, I should have said um, the Mill and the Cross for art direction. Anyway, go yeah. on. Uh, one is Jane Eyre. Mm. So it's it's under art direction, but it's a combination of everything. It creates such a sense of place in that not necessarily castle, but that mansion type place. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so empty and so cold. It just feels cold when you when you, when you see the film Mm -hmm. and partially that's a function of the cinematography and the lighting or rather the lack of lighting. Um, but it just, it's certain rooms are very sparsely decorated and some rooms are quite lavish and it's notable that, you, the audience, along with the characters, can feel completely cut off and uncomfortable in both environments. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it, it just feels so genuine. I talked about it with costume design uh, a few weeks ago. It's just everything feels so genuine while still not sacrificing filmmaking style and understanding how best to elicit 
an emotional reaction from us. And I'm willing to put it down in this case as a function of the art direction and really creating a sense of space. So that's one. Um, another one is a movie I don't particularly care for, which is the adjustment bureau. <laughs> and I think, but I think it's, it's, it is art directed quite well. Um, because it does, there are certain rooms where they are meant to be efficient, cold, calculating and efficient. And the rooms feel like that. And the film feels like that. Occasionally it feels messy. And that is often for a specific reason. It's because, uh, the, the main characters themselves are in an emotionally messy place, but, but it really does sort of embrace certain ideas of sci-fi in the idea of clean, like almost that, that idea of cleanliness is next to godliness. And so if you have characters that are meant to be sort of on a higher plane, the places they inhabit are clean and sleek and they'd be beautiful if they weren't just so damn emotionally cold. So I liked that. Uh, sound, my old standby Moneyball, um, which the the sound design for it is is in, very complex because and this is a, again all of these work together. It's it's not merely the sound; it's also a function of sound editing and editing itself. Because like we are, we see a game, then we see it on TV. Then we hear it on the radio while also hearing a person's reaction to that. Mm -hmm. And it it creates this idea that it's all, it's all happening at once. And so I do. So the more I think about the more I'm actually pleased with how the film is edited, but like the sound design, you always know you, you can always tell pretty much what's happening. You can tell like, okay, I'm not seeing who's talking, but I, I hear just the right amount of crackle and I know I'm listening to a radio broadcast. Um, and also, David, as I mentioned on the show before, I do enjoy baseball. I specifically like going to a baseball game, and I do enjoy the sounds of baseball. Mm-hmm. And it captures that. It captures the – because the film also talks about being romantic about baseball. And it creates the proper sounds for you to feel romantic about baseball. And uh, so I feel like the sound design of that film is really wonderful. And the last you, one – Now you're talking about the crack of the bat, the roar of the crowd? If you will, yes. The shout of the peanut vendors. And the cry of the fishmongers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so the last one that I'll mention, uh, there are two of them. One I didn't write down, but I'll, I'll start with that. So the last two you'll mention. The last two I'll mention. The last category I'll mention. Ah. How about that? Um, and I already talked about a little bit. Uh, this Life's a Happy Song from the Muppets. Man or Muppet is a perfectly fine song. But Life's a Happy Song is wonderful it's just such a fun production and there's when you first hear it you feel like there's a slight bit of irony and then you realize there is not Uh and it is just a just an upbeat fun well-written song that really sets the tone for the film you're about to see so that's one and then there's another one from the film martha marcy may marlene uh listed in the credits as being called marlene and it is sung, and I don't know if it was written by, but it was sung and performed in the film by John Hawks. No, it's uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, but okay. I was reading about it. Okay, good. It's a guy. Okay, it's it's, li- it's some guy. Like IMDb doesn't ha- doesn't really uh, list this, so I, I went on iTunes and it was listed under John Hawks, but I know that just means that's who is performing it. So I don't know who wrote it, and I'm sorry. 
But that to me is such a beauty. It, it, it very much does capture the tone of the film. It is the, the cult leader singing to his, uh, the only way I can phrase, phrase it is his latest acquisition. Um, and just, it's such a beautiful and haunting song and it's just very simple. Uh, and it is deceptively simple because there's, it is filled with subtext and meaning and it's performed wonderfully by John Hawks. I do enjoy the way he sings and performs. Uh, he has a cup, uh, a song or two on the winter's bone soundtrack and, uh, and just it's it's one of those things that because of the type of song it is and because of the type of movie that it's in, uh, of course, it would never be nominated. And that is unfortunate because it is one of the better uses of a song in a film. Um, did you did? How did you respond to that song? Uh, I Yeah, I, I also really liked it. Um, and so it's uh, I don't know. Just part like part of me wanted to buy the soundtrack to Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. Uh, as a function of that song. And then I realized like, Oh, I can just buy the song. Um, but I almost don't want to buy it. I only, I, I partially just want to hear it in the context of the film because right. it, cause that's the other thing is like really great songs that were written for movies. Like I feel like the best ones are the ones that they can exist outside the movie and they're perfectly fine, but there's something there's just, it has the movies DNA. They have the movies DNA in them. Do you know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I know I'm speaking kind of conceptually. I'm sure that Sean Durkin maybe like knew those songs, maybe even had them in mind as he was writing yeah. the film. And there's a, there's a, what is to me a, a brilliant moment in the film is you see one of the other guys in the film uh, with a guitar singing, but he's not singing. He's not actually saying any words. Uh, and you don't know why that is. But then when John Hawks, the leader of the uh, cult, when he sings, he's able to, he's allowed to use words. And I feel like that in itself is actually quite, uh, quite stirring. Okay. I think his name is Jackson C. Frank. Okay. Well, anyway. let's, ho- let's hope it's so well done, Jackson C. Frank, if it in fact is you. <laughs> All right. So thank you uh, for listening. As always, you can find us at battleshippretension.com where you can find uh, reviews. You can hear our opinions on other movies than the ones we talked about today, uh, both positive and negative reviews of theatrical releases and home video releases from me and Tyler and our uh, wonderful and uh, ever-expanding uh, staff of, uh, of writers. Um, or you can email us your complaints and praise um, respectively to David at BattleshipRetention.com and Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at Twitter.com slash ThePretension and follow Tyler on Twitter at Twitter.com slash MoreLessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at MoreThanOneLesson.com or on iTunes. And you can find my other podcast, you really can now, it's back, Previously on at PreviouslyOnShow.com or in iTunes. And I, uh, I know last week you took... The chance to plug um, a more than one lesson I want to plug previously on because we have uh, reformatted the first segment of the show um, specifically to attract uh, a wider audience. As the as the show was formatted before, it was very spoiler heavy and was pretty much marketed directly to other super hardcore TV geeks like me and Sean. And um, we still think we'll be able to please that audience, um, but now there won't be any spoilers 
of any significance in the show until the third and final segment. So you can download and uh, listen to our thoughts about the weekend TV and TV in general without any major spoilers. And then if you haven't seen uh, or don't care to be spoiled for whatever we've decided the big show of the week is, you can just turn it off when we get to the third segment. So uh, that uh, should make the show more accessible and also makes the show shorter overall, uh, which is good. So uh, head over to previouslyonshow.com and check out me and Sean talking about TV. All right. And thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.